We're continuing our study in 1 Corinthians 7 and looking at what we're calling this series in terms of the marriage rules of what God has prescribed for us regarding marriage. I think one of the big questions that comes up regarding marriage is what the Apostle Paul deals with right here is, is it okay uh, to divorce? And in our society, uh, it is simply assumed that one can divorce for any reason. Uh, People declare irreconcilable differences and file for divorce at quite an alarming rate. But is that what God had in mind for marriage? And while the laws of our country may allow for divorce for any reason, what does God say about it? That needs to be our concern is what do the scriptures say about marriage and how we are supposed to behave in the marriage relationship. And this morning we're looking at 1 Corinthians 7 verses 8 through 11, a really important section in describing what marriage is supposed to be and how this is supposed to look in the eyes of of God. You'll notice in verses 8 and 9 that he begins by addressing the unmarried and the widows. And it might be silly to ask this question on the surface, but it is really important to ask who exactly are the unmarried here? We would have the tendency to say, well, that's just anybody who's not married, right? It seems pretty simple. If you're single, you fall into this category. But there are a a couple of reasons that we have to reconsider that. Number one is what he puts with that. He says it to the unmarried and to the widows. If the classification of unmarried just simply meant anybody who's single, regardless of any reason, then it becomes redundant to then put on there with it. And widows also. Well, you're single too. You would also be included. I think it is important to consider then that when he is speaking to the unmarried, he has in view those who have never married whatsoever. And what we're going to see is that he's going to be talking in particular about the people then who have the right to marriage. People who have never been married. And then he's also speaking of widows. And that's why he brings them in as well. Any of this classification of those who have the right to marriage, these are the rules that he's going to give to them. And that's what you see in Genesis 2.24, a text that we're going to look at quite a few times this morning, and that everybody has a right to one marriage. And so these are the people to whom he's speaking about, those who have the right to marriage. The reason why we should not include the divorce in this section, as many often try to do, is because he's going to deal with them in just a moment. When you get to verses 10 and 11, he's going to address their situation specifically. If he wanted to encompass all people, the widows, the divorced, the never married, he could have just said, and to the unmarried. And if that had been all that he said, I think I would have then said, yep, he's talking to everybody that that would include the divorce and all that. But when he says the unmarried and the widows, he obviously has somebody in particular when he speaks to the unmarried, those who have never married, those who have the right to marriage. This is who he has in view. And we'll explore more of this. And then as we go on in this lesson this very morning, here's what he says to them. You'll notice that in verse eight, he says that it is good for them to remain as I am. And the ESV adds to remain single as I am. And I think that is the like understanding of what the Apostle Paul is saying. He says to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it's good for you to remain single as I am. Now, 
Let's take a stop there for a moment. Because I think it's important that we recognize what the Apostle Paul is saying here. We talked about last week, and we'll bring it up again now. I find great difficulty with the Apostle Paul coming along and saying, it is better for everybody in general to remain unmarried. If you're single, don't get married. And that's what he says right here. There's an awful lot of problems with that. As we mentioned last time, remember what Genesis in chapter 1 found, that in all of the creation, all that God had done, and as He creates the heavens and the earth, and He creates man and all that, and everything is good and very good, there is one thing that wasn't good. It wasn't good for man to be alone. And it seems highly contradictory for the Apostle Paul to come along and say, the best circumstance for you in life is to stay single. I don't think that's the intention at all when Paul says that here. When he says to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for you to remain single as I am. We also have noted that in chapter 7 already, the Apostle Paul is glorifying the blessings of marriage, hasn't he? He has talked about why marriage is good and why God gave marriage and why that is useful. And I cannot see the Apostle Paul suggesting that there is a higher morality or a higher spirituality because you are single rather than being married. For God is the one who gave the institution of marriage. And it was certainly not the institution of marriage that God said, well, I just know that humans aren't going to be able to get along by themselves, so I guess as a a default we'll have to give them this backstop of marriage. Man, the Scriptures never, ever picture marriage like that as something that is okay, but you're better off if you don't do it. Think about how the Apostle Paul describes marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 and relates the marriage relationship to a picture of Christ in the church. No higher picture could you have drawn in terms of value and meaning than to parallel it to Christ in the church. So what is the Apostle Paul doing? It is important to keep in mind that as we read this, we are reading... The answers of the Apostle Paul to questions that the Corinthians have asked. And it would have been wonderful if we had the other side of the equation and know, well, here's exactly what all the Corinthians were asking. And here's how Paul is responding to those things. But it seems evident by what he speaks here that there seems to be a concern or a question of is living single acceptable? And for us, that may seem a little bit difficult, but in the Greek culture, and especially in the Jewish culture, it was assumed that you were going to be married. It was pressured upon you that that's exactly what you did. You grew up and you got married. And it doesn't seem unreasonable to consider that the question is simply, can one be single and be acceptable before God? And that the answer that the Apostle Paul is giving is yes. Yes, you can be single and serve the Lord. Yes, you can be single and be right before God and be acceptable. And it is even good. It is not something that is inferior. And... I hope that you might consider, while that might seem a little unusual, it's really not that unusual. I could probably get a lot of hands of single people in this room who are sick and tired of people asking them when they're going to get married. That's a pretty common kind of attitude that even our society has even today. Well, you have to get married, right? 
And the Apostle Paul is showing, no, you don't. You can live single and be acceptable before God. You can be single and serve the Lord. It is good to be in that condition. There is nothing inferior in that kind of position before God. You can choose to be a single. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. It's good for you to be single. Look at me. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. You can remain single just as I am. And so there's no reason then to denigrate Christians who choose to be single or as if there was something wrong with them. Oh, well, hurry up and get married. What's your problem? There must be something wrong with you. The single life is absolutely acceptable and good before God. And the Apostle Paul wants to declare that to be able to do that. But he does make an observation about that that is very important there in verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. He reminds them, understand the decision that you're making in living the single life is that you are to exercise self-control. And we have seen what he's talking about in chapter 6 as well as in chapter 7 in regards to sexual relations, in regards to sexual purity. Understand if you are single, then you are saying that you are going to exercise self-control over those desires. And it is a reminder to us that the Apostle Paul is spelling out here that that intimacy of those desires are only to be fulfilled in marriage. How often you get people say, well, it doesn't say anywhere that we can't have relations before marriage. Yes, it does. Yes, it does all over the place. It does in the word fornication and sexual immorality. And it's certainly stated right here. You want to live single? Good. That's fine. Acceptable. Good before God. But understand something. You're exercising self-control of that decision. Understand that you must remain under control with your purity then. And that's what he tells them there. That's the decision that you are making. And so he says the single life is good, but understand you better not be burning with passion and lust. Can't allow yourself to do that. If you're going to live the single life, that is a good decision. There is nothing wrong with that. That is acceptable before God. You can live a life full, pleasing, acceptable, serving to God as a single person. But it's not acceptable to live that way and to be burning in your lust and in your desires. So he says there, if that were to be the case, in verse 9 he says, to understand that marriage then is the place to fulfill those desires. Uh, the original says it is better than to marry than to burn. And to burn is actually a, an idiom that was used by the Greeks as well as even in Jewish writings, secular writings as well, to speak of burning with lust. And so that's why every translation I picked up adds the phrase with passion. And see, that's what he's getting at here is you're under self-control. You must express self-control in those desires as you live this good single life before God. Now he moves on to perhaps what would be more important in a sense that a greater audience with bigger questions. 
Because the rest of this chapter is all about circumstances regarding marriage and various scenarios that come up with that. And so he lays out here then the the rule that God has given. And you'll notice how he begins when he says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Notice as he begins this, he says, To the married I give this charge. And then he reminds and says, Well, what I'm giving you is actually nothing new, but exactly what Jesus taught when he was on the earth. That's what he means here when he says, Not I, but the Lord. In a later paragraph, he's going to say, uh, I, not the Lord. And that doesn't mean now he's offering up some kind of suggestion. He's saying Jesus didn't speak of this scenario, but let me tell you what God says here, though. He says, I'm not telling you anything different or anything new. This is exactly what Jesus expressed. If you'll keep your hand here in 1 Corinthians 7, but turn to Matthew 19. And then if you have like a two ribbon Bible or a five ribbon Bible, put a ribbon there because we're going to come back to Matthew 19 a, a couple of times in our study this morning. Matthew 19, verse 3. The Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any reason? Hey, there's the title of the sermon. Can we divorce? Is it okay to divorce? That's what they're asking. Is it lawful to divorce for any reason? Our society says, Sure, whatever, no big deal, right? Go right ahead. Listen to what Jesus says there. Matthew 19. He answered, have you not read he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is, that's what I'm teaching. <laughs> Don't divorce. That's what verse 10 says. To the married I give this charge. The wife's not to separate from her husband. Verse 11, the husband should not divorce his wife. Recognize, separate and divorce are not talking about two different things. They did not have in their society what we have in our society where there's a distinction between divorce and legal separation. That didn't exist in that day and time. Not only that, those words are used interchangeably. There in Matthew 19 and verse 6, when Jesus says, What God has joined together, let not man separate, is the same word that's here in verse 10. The wife's not to separate from her husband. It is speaking of divorce. So don't think that it's saying something different to the wife than it is to the husband. In fact, you'll notice all throughout this a pretty countercultural teaching that the Apostle Paul teaches regarding men and women, husbands and wives. They get the exact same rules. That wasn't the case in Roman and Greek culture at all. The rules were different and they were applied different and obviously had a leaning of favoritism toward the men rather than the women. In God's economy, notice it's exactly the same. What is said to the wife is also said to the husband. Do not divorce. Which reminds us of something really, really, really important that if I could engrave anything on you today is that God does not care about what our culture says or what the laws of the land say. 
regarding marriage at all. God does not care. We can come up with all the rules and all the laws and all the exceptions and all the loopholes and all the reasons for marriage or divorce or anything else, and God doesn't care. These are the laws that God has given, and He pays no regard to the fact that in Matthew 19, here are the Pharisees saying, well, we can divorce for any reason, right? Jesus goes, no. Haven't you read from the beginning? He made a male and female. The two become one flesh. What God has joined, don't separate. Here in a culture of Corinth, where sexual immorality is everywhere, it became a word to be Corinthian, to speak of the depravity. He writes to them and says, to the married I said, don't divorce. That's the rule. I know that we think we're so forward thinking and we're so different and all that, but we're not. God's law is very clear. Marriage is to be one man, one woman, for life. His rule, don't divorce. I want us just to consider something for a moment in how we approach marriage. Because I think that has a lot to do with the problem that we have, not only in our society, but even as Christians enter into marriage. We're kind of used to a contract system in this country, in the way we operate with things. You have a contract for your cell phone, you have a contract for your cable company, you do all these contracts. And you stay in the contract as long as you're happy with the services that are being provided. And when you're no longer happy with your cell phone provider because it drops out everywhere you drive all over the place or your cable always goes out and it gets fuzzy you don't know why am I paying a million dollars to have television you just quit you cancel the contract you find another person another company who's going to give you what you want and too often people enter into marriage like it's a contract I'm in the marriage as long as you provide what I'm looking for in the marriage. And so you do these things and keep making me happy and I'll keep my end of the bargain and I'll do what I want to do then as well. But as soon as you stop giving me what I want out of this and provide for me for this contract, then I'm out. This is not a marriage contract. This is a marriage covenant You did not on your wedding day stand before God and say, men, I will take out the trash so long as you do the dishes. And she, you did not, women, you did not say to your husband, and I will make the meal so long as you make the money. We did not enter into a contract with each other, stating to each other, as long as you do what I want, I'll give you what you want. That's not marriage. That is a selfish contract. We are entered into a binding marital covenant that you vowed with words to your spouse that said for better or for worse, for sickness or for health, no matter how good it gets and rolling in the dough we are or how poor we are that we're living in a cardboard box on the sidewalk, we are together. That's what a covenant is. And that's why God uses Christ and the church as a beautiful example of it. How are you doing on your end of the covenant with God? 
So he quit and walked away because you failed, right? No. God remains faithful, though we are faithless. That's why marriage gets the picture of Christ and the church. Because it doesn't matter if the other person's not living up to the obligations. That wasn't what the vows said. This is not a contract. This is a covenant. And this is a covenant that ended with the words, Till death do us part. And we should not be surprised that we come into a text like this and God says you don't divorce. Even if you knew nothing of this passage, you said those words in your vows. You said them. You said till death do us part. You all chuckled when I said unless you take out the right. Nobody had vows that said that. I mean, nobody is sitting in the, at the wedding going, wow, that is beautiful. You know, he said he'd take out the trash as long as she makes the dinner. That is, that is love, and I sure hope to find that one day. <laughs> what? That's not what we're signing up for. It's a covenant that we're together through thick and thin no matter what happens. And that's what makes God's covenant with us so beautiful. It's because He's with us through thick and thin. And is always there when we're coming back. Beautiful picture then of what marriage is supposed to look like that we're not supposed to divorce. This is not a contract. The Apostle Paul in verse 11 answers a question that I think is important to answer. Well, what happens if you are divorced? It's important to recognize the Apostle Paul is not saying, now if you don't like your your marriage, go ahead and get a divorce and that's okay. That would just unravel the very teaching he just said in this prior breath. A wife is not to divorce her husband, separate from her husband. Husband's not to divorce his wife. That's the rule. He says, I'm not even teaching you something new. That's exactly what Jesus taught. He could just quote in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 6 right there. He says, they ask, can we divorce for any reason? Jesus says, no. The two have become one flesh. What God has joined together, don't separate. So the answer that is being given here is in regards to the situation of, well, we've already divorced. So what now? Well, he gives the answer to that in verse 11. If she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Notice that there are two options that are given. If you are divorced, here's what you are supposed to do. You can stay as you are and remain unmarried. Or you can reconcile to that spouse that you have divorced from. Please recognize something here. Is he absolutely does not allow remarriage. Just because you're divorced doesn't necessarily mean that you have the right to go marry again. This is the second fundamental flaw of our society that that Christians have adopted. They have adopted number one, well, you can divorce for any reason. It's okay, right? No. And they said, well, number two, if you're divorced, then it's okay to remarry because you're single. No. 
And that's why we emphasize that when he said there in verse 8, to the unmarried, he could not be telling the divorce, well, it's okay to go get married. He can't have the divorce in view. Because he tells the divorce specifically here in verse 11, you must stay unmarried or be reconciled. He doesn't give them what verse 8 says. Well, hey, it's fine if you're single, but if you're burning with passion, then understand the answer to that is for marriage. He doesn't give them that. He says you have two choices. You stay unmarried or you're reconciled. It teaches us something very important that while all people are given the right to marriage, that's Genesis 2, you're born, you're breathing, you're a human, you're given the right to one marriage. But notice he doesn't give the right to remarriage for all people in all circumstances. There are circumstances where that's allowed and there are circumstances where that's not allowed. And he's quite clear here, that circumstance is not allowed to this situation here of divorce. It's not given to them. And so I think that's very, very important. Now, let me start addressing all of the things that come up after teaching something like this. I would just say, amen, there we go, we're done. You know, 25-minute sermon, we can all get to get to lunch early, good to go. Unfortunately, <laughs> usually there's a whole lot of questions about, well, what about? So let's do some what abouts, and it's your fault that we're going to be here long. <laughs> so, this happens all the time, though. And it's important. these are important questions. These are absolutely important questions that have to be answered. I just got these even recently. I had somebody come, come in through the doors that I've never met before in my life and just went right after me about, well, what about this? Here's one of them. Well, what about unbelievers? This is perhaps one of the biggest ones. And in my discussions with the person that I just had recently, they said, well, 1 Corinthians 7 is written to Christians. And I said, yeah, (laughs) yes, it is. It most certainly is written to Christians. So that means everything that we've studied only applies to you in the room and doesn't apply to people who are unbelievers, right? That's the stance that's pretty well taken. Let's walk through this and consider, yes, this text is written to Christians, isn't it? But who does he say that he's quoting? Not I, but the Lord. He says, I'm actually quoting what Jesus already taught. Well, that doesn't help a whole lot either. Who was Jesus talking to in Matthew 19? What group of people is he talking to? He's talking to people who are under the law of Moses. So people will come along and say, Matthew 19 and Matthew 5 does not apply to us at all because that was the law of Moses. And 1 Corinthians 7 doesn't apply to anyone in the world except for Christians because it was written only to Christians. Here's the problem. When Jesus there in Matthew 19, I hope you're still there with your hand, in Matthew 19 and verse 6, who does he quote? He goes to Genesis 2 and verse 24 and says, A man cannot leave his father and mother, be joined his wife, and the two become one flesh. What people was God talking to when he gave that in Genesis 2? Christians, right? No. Jews, right? No. Leave father and mother. That's not even Adam and Eve. They don't even have a mother and a father. Who is he talking to? All humanity. All humanity. 
think of somebody else he could be saying, leave father and mother and be joined to wife. What are we talking about? I'd be like, who, what's a dad? I don't even know what you're talking about. He's talking much broader and universally to all humanity, regardless of time, regardless of covenant. Notice how beautiful it is regarding God's marriage law. It never changed. What was said in Genesis 2 was taught under the Old Covenant and it was taught under the New Covenant. It didn't matter if you were an outsider. It didn't matter if you were an insider, if you were in the covenant. The law was exactly the same. It was universal and applied to all people. And let me draw this conclusion really important too. If these laws are not to unbelievers, then they don't even have a right to marriage in the first place. If we're going to say God's marriage laws are only to Christians, then wait a minute. Then they don't have any right to get married until they come to Christ. Does this even make sense? The marriage laws have always been... From the very beginning, a universal teaching to all peoples, believers, unbelievers, Jews, Gentiles, it didn't matter who you were, these laws all applied to them. And so there is no basis to come to this text and go, well, this is only to Christians. You're right, it is written to Christians, but here's the problem. He quoted Jesus. He said, well, Jesus was talking to the Jews. You're right. The only problem with that is he quoted Genesis. And everybody's tying back to Genesis 2 and saying, you don't divorce because you get one marriage for life. One man, one woman for life. That's God's law. That's God's rule. Okay. Now, let's go one step further. What does it mean if I am divorced and I did remarry? Okay. God commanded not to divorce, but you did. And God commanded that if you do get divorced, you remain unmarried or be reconciled. But you didn't. You remarried. Now what? Still in Matthew 19? Paul doesn't address this. He doesn't have to. He said, I'm just going to quote what Jesus said. The law he gives is what Jesus said while he was on the earth. Back to Matthew 19, verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Very simple declaration. You are committing the sin of adultery if you divorce and remarry unless the divorce was for sexual immorality. That's what he said. In fact, he said it even more strongly and involved all parties in Matthew 5 and verse 32. Jesus said, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Notice he gets both people who are getting married here. Very important to observe this. If you're the one who caused the divorce, you say, okay, I'm going to divorce her and I go get remarried. Matthew 5, he says, that's adultery. And then he goes further and says, even if you were the divorced, even if they divorced you, if somebody marries you, you're committing adultery too. 
Do you understand why Paul said here in verse 10 of chapter 7? You have two options. Remain unmarried or be reconciled. Because if you marry, you're committing adultery. That's what Jesus taught in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19. That's why the Apostle Paul comes in so strongly here and says, understand that you cannot just say, well, I'm single, go do whatever I want to do. If the divorce was for any other cause but sexual immorality, the remarriage is classified by Jesus as committing adultery. It is sin. And why that is why the Apostle Paul would say, you must then remain unmarried or be reconciled. Let me say it again, because I know this is not where our society is at. But listen to what God is saying. Being single does not mean you necessarily have the right to a marriage. If you've never been married, you do. But if you've been married before, you don't. There are rules. I think that's important. It makes sense. You ever read? I just read one the other day online. Celebrity so-and-so is like on their sixth marriage. And you go, somebody just should lock that person away and stop. I mean, just take the, the marriage license away. You're just, how many more lives do you need to wreck and just keep going through? Stop. Stop treating this like a contract. This is a covenant. This is supposed to be once in your life covenant. And there are then regulations that God gives to prohibit us going through wives and husbands like crazy. This is a covenant that is made before God. And so the Apostle Paul then explains then, remaining unmarried or be reconciled is the important answer if we've been divorced for any reason except sexual immorality. One more. And this is probably the big touchdown on the board right here for questions. And this is what I had a big discussion with somebody a couple days ago. Okay. I've done all of those things wrong. And I've remarried. And I'm sorry that I've done those things. You're right that those things were a sin. Am I able to stay in that marriage? Am I able to stay in that relationship? So we recognize we got divorced for the wrong reason. We married somebody else and we didn't have the right to do that. And we agree that Jesus condemns that in in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and says that we have committed adultery. Now, we have come to Christ. Our sins are forgiven. We're sorry for our sins. Can we stay in the marriage? And every book and podcast in the world will all say, yeah, you can stay right there. You're fine. We'll even misuse uh, verses 17 to 24 that we'll talk about next week. Just say, well, you just stay right where you're at. Can you be forgiven of every and any sin? Yes. I stood on my head trying to explain. Yes, your sins are forgiven. You committed adultery. Can you be forgiven? Yes. You divorced improperly. Can you be forgiven? Yes. Yeah, you divorced and you remarried somebody else. You weren't supposed to remarry as Paul and Jesus said. Can you be forgiven? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. That's not the question. The question is, is now the marriage acceptable before God and now fine 
Or is this still sinful as it was condemned and now something has to be done about it? That's the question. The question is not about forgiveness. Absolutely can be forgiven. The question is, are you allowed to remain there or are you going right back into sin again? The best place that I know to handle that is to apply what Romans 7 teaches us about marriage. And so I'll use that as we start wrapping up then. In Romans 7, in verse 2, the Apostle Paul says that the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, now listen, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And I hope you'll mark that for your Bible and consider that text. Because what he is describing here is he says, yeah, this situation, this marriage is sinful. She is an adulteress. She leaves and goes to another man. And notice in verse 3 it says, she will be called an adulteress not until she repents. But all the days that the husband's still alive. This is an ongoing sinful problem. The Apostle Paul could have said, yep, that adultery was a sin. But when she repents and is forgiven of that sin, she can stay where she's at. He doesn't say that. He says she's called an adulteress as long as. So that's a continuous process. She remains an adulteress as long as the original spouse lives. The point is that an unlawful marriage is still an unlawful marriage. I think that would make sense. If we do something wrong before we come to Christ, it's still wrong after coming to Christ. It's still the same sin. It is still forbidden. It is still unacceptable. It is still not approved. Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching still stands. What did they say? What did the Apostle Paul say to do if you were divorced? You were to remain unmarried or be reconciled. That's the directive that's being given. And to remarry then puts you in the sin of adultery. And I don't know how else to say how you get out of the sin of adultery except to go back to what the Apostle Paul said to do, but to remain unmarried or be reconciled to your first spouse. Remember, repentance is not just sorrow. I grow weary of that. Well, we're sorry. That's a good starting point. I'm glad you're sorry. I I believe God is glad you're sorry too. But let's bear fruit worthy of repentance now. What are we going to do about it with our sorrow? What must we do going forward to be pleasing to God? We don't get to go before God and say, okay, I'm ready to be a Christian. I'm sorry. Now keep living however I want to live. Things have to change. We have to live and change For the will of God. Is divorce okay? No. The short answer is no. Jesus gave one exception. That the marriage is wrecked with sexual immorality. That became the one exception that God gave as to why a divorce would be acceptable before him and would not cause The sin of adultery. Now, before you pack it up, please hear me as we end. I recognize 
the absolute complications that God's marriage law can create. And it's not that His marriage laws are complicated, but that we make a mess in our lives regarding to God's marriage laws. I recognize that. And I want to say to you, if you're not sure where you stand and how to apply these marriage laws to you, I would be happy to meet with you in private and study these passages and go over them and work out with you, well, here's my scenario, here's what happened, how does God's law apply to my situation, to my marriage, to my circumstance? I would be thrilled to do that with you. Please do not leave and go, well, I just guess I can't go to that church again. No, we want you here. We want to study with you and we want to help you learn what God's will is and how you can be obedient to God's law. So we want to help you with that. But I hope that you will consider that we must never reject the teachings of our Lord, no matter how difficult the command may be. We must never reject any commandment of our God, even as difficult as some of those commands may be. I don't believe it is without consequence that when Jesus was done in Matthew 19 teaching about marriage and divorce, the disciples said, well, maybe it's better that we not marry. There was an understanding about the stringent nature of God's marriage law that it meant one man and one woman for life. Our Lord is the master who has saved us from our sins and we must submit to his marriage laws. He created marriage, he instituted marriage, and we are governed by his marriage laws. Please don't reject those laws. Your soul is not worth it. It is not worth forfeiting your soul over trying to do what we think is the easier, more convenient path. May you consider God's laws today, and if we can help you with that, we stand ready to do so. You pull your song books out, we're singing an invitation song, and we invite you to find your hope in the grace of God. As we've already mentioned, He can be forgiven of all sins. Anything that we have done, no matter how big of a mess that we've made in our lives or in our marriages, we can be forgiven by God. That is the greatest blessing that there is, that God will take us back, that He is in covenant with us. But we beg you to consider that God calls us to change our ways, to change our lives, and to be willing to serve Him no matter the sacrifice and no matter the cost. Are you ready to do that this morning, to turn away from your sins? Repenting and turning away from a life of doing what is for our own good and rather doing what the Lord wills. Confess Jesus to be the Son of God who came to this earth and died for your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins to enter into relationship with Jesus. Will you come and do that this morning? Will you come now while we stand and while we sing?